we have in Christ. And what a beautiful testimony uh, of that hope. And today, being the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to spend some time talking uh, about hope. Let's uh, dismiss the kids. If you're involved in the children's ministry, uh, the, the Christmas program, you can head to the back, uh, and Ms. Friesen will meet you back there. Um, hope is such a significant thing, even uh, an essential thing to the human soul, to have hope. And yet we live in this broken world, so unstable, uh, so temporary, a world where our hopes, if, if they're wrapped up in these earthly things, are just so quickly snatched away, or as we've seen, um, go up in smoke, literally. Christmas is this season of hope, and, and yet so often um, the roots of that hope only uh, run as deep as nostalgia and, and sentimentality through this Christmas season. And, and while Uh, Christmas speaks to so many of these deep longings of our soul, the longings for for hope, for peace, for love, for joy. At the same time, it it so quickly becomes cheapened, uh, nothing less than uh, this sickeningly sweet Hallmark movie, empty sentimentality. And and so for for so many, um, Christmas becomes a time of make-believe, a time of pretending imagining that maybe this could be, but with no more reality to it than the hope of Santa coming down the chimney. And because of that, as Christmas is held up as this celebration, this time of of joy and peace and hope, uh, it is also at the same time uh, a season when there is a spike in depression and drug use and even suicide amongst those who who simply don't have the luxury of imagining hope. And so as the book of Proverbs says, a hope deferred makes the heart sick. But as Christians, as those who actually believe in the coming of Christ at Christmas, um, those promises, that that too-good-to-be-true sense that everything will be okay, that that great hope on the horizon of Christmas has, has grit to it has reality to it. There's a foundation there on which it stands. Church, we have what the rest of our culture can only wistfully wish for. And while down deep they know that theirs is a false hope, a a game of make-believe, we ought to have this real confidence that our hope will not disappoint, that our hope is in something that cannot be shaken. And so that's my goal this Christmas that we take that nostalgia and the dream of, of Christmas and, and, we, and we drill down to the foundation under that. We, we take that uh, to its extent, to what it's meant to be, celebrating Christmas not as this kind of sentimental wish, but as reality, the truth in Christ. And, and that reality um, comes to light as we understand who Jesus is truly is. The, the identity of this baby born in the manger that we talk about and sing about, uh, that his identity changes everything. And to begin to grasp that identity as, as this anchor for our hope, um, I want us to spend the next uh, few weeks uh, in the book of Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we'll be um, digging through these verses together. So turn with me there 
Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, there should be one near you in the uh, back of the pew in front of you. I um, just encourage you to pull that out and uh, use it. And uh, we want you to have God's word open in front of you. I have nothing for you. Um, this is what I have. I have God's truth, and uh, that's all we ought to want. And so um, let's look together at it. Now, as you skim over this and you're turning to Matthew 1 and looking at the first few verses, um, be honest. If you were turning here for your morning devotions, you're skipping this, right? You're, at best, if you're one of those real dutiful Christians, um, you're going to skim over it and kind of mumble to yourself. You're going to make it through 15 verses in about three seconds, right? And the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Hallelujah. It's just names, right? Well, yeah, but there's so much there. There's so much beneath this. And uh, these names tell us a great deal about the identity of Jesus uh, and in significant ways. And, and if, uh, if we were going to really drill down here, I think there would be a number of sermons we could pull out from this. Um, but just for the sake of looking at this and preparing our hearts, looking forward to Christmas, um, I want us to see three things. Um, Jesus as the son of Abraham, Jesus as the son of David, uh, and then Jesus as the son of God. So that's where we're going leading up to Christmas. Um, first, this week, we're going to look at Jesus as the son of Abraham. And what does that mean? So um, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, follow along with me as I read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Let's just stop there for this morning. Uh, as I said, just a list of names. list of uh, a, a genealogy, a family tree, um, and yet there are a lot of things that we can learn from this. Um, and uh, and as we turn to uh, to this passage, let me let me pray as we uh, um, prepare our hearts for it. Father, thank you, thank you for your word, thank you for this truth um, that we can hold in our hands. God, would you be at work? Lord, would you? Humble the proud this morning. Would you break those of us who need to be broken that we would come to our knees to see our need for you? And God, would you lift up those who are broken? Would you comfort those who are mourning? Would you um, ease the suffering of those who are, uh, who are doubting and wrestling? Lord, that your hope would go out to the hopeless this morning. Um, that we might know uh, the glorious truth of your gospel and what it means that Jesus has come as the son of Abraham um, to bring us hope. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So beyond just a list of names, um, Matthew actually tips us off, right, out of the gate, um, telling us... Um, what's important, what he definitely wants us to get and, and not miss. He, he opens this up saying, this is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And uh, those, are, those are highly significant names. Uh, and in telling us who Jesus is and, and what he came to do, those are crucial. Um, understanding that Jesus is the son of Abraham, um, we see that he came to give hope for the hopeless. Hope for the hopeless. You see, it, it matters that Jesus was the physical descendant of Abraham um, because God had made significant promises to Abraham. Promises that were going to be fulfilled through his family line. And so first, um, let's just look at those promises. Let's see the promise given. That's point one this morning, the promise given. What is it that God has promised to Abraham? And to understand that, we need to go back all the way to the book of Genesis. And actually to get it fully, um, we need to go prior to Abraham. Um, we need to go all the way back to, to Adam. And to see Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden, this perfect utopia, the, the fullness uh, of, of joy and peace and rest, um, no suffering, no pain, no toil, no death. They had no need for hope. They had everything that you could hope for. And so when they disobeyed God for the first time, when they broke his command. They were introduced, they, they introduced this, this poison, this corruption uh, into a previously perfect world. And along with that, they, they made themselves enemies of God, their creator. They put themselves under his curse, under his judgment for their sin and rebellion. And, and for the first time, uh, they experienced three things. Separation from one another, their, their shame um, causes this wedge between them. They, they realize that they're naked. They shield themselves from one another and their, their relationship with one another is broken. They also experience separation from God. Their guilt of their sin destroys this once perfect relationship that they had. And, and because of that separation from one another and that separation from God, they experience fear about the future. What comes next? Is everything going to be okay? What lies ahead? Their shame and their guilt bring about this lack of hope, this, this fear and uncertainty, this unease. Will everything be okay or not? And as descendants of Adam, um, we are all born into that guilt and shame, that lack of hope. We experience the same separation from, from one another, the pain and uncertainty that goes with it, the separation from God and the judgment that we deserve because of it, and this need for hope. We feel it. Don't you feel it? Our hearts are, are desperately reaching out, looking for something to hold on to, some kind of hope, some kind of promise that, that everything will be okay, that the brokenness in this world will somehow be made right. That's why this concept of hope, uh, of hope at Christmas is so powerful. It has this, this universal draw because of that brokenness that we feel all around us. So Genesis 3, verse 15, right after that first sin, as, as God is explaining to Adam and Eve, um, these are the consequences for your rebellion. This is what's going to happen. Um, speaking to the serpent, to Satan, he says this, I will put enmity, war, 
between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a promise. A promise that that one is coming. There will be a, a child, a male child, born of the woman, a human child, And he would be wounded by the pain of sin. The serpent would bruise his heel. Not mortal, but wounded. But he would ultimately crush the serpent's head. He would overcome the curse of sin and death in this world. He would destroy it. This is the first promise of hope. This is just just a flicker of light on the horizon. God saying, one day I will make everything right again. You watch for it. You wait for it. There is hope. And so as you're reading the Bible, the rest of the Bible is strung together on that theme. It's always saying this is what that hope will be or showing people in need of that hope or longing for that hope. The whole Bible follows that. And for 2,000 years after that promise given, finally, God spoke to Abraham, the first big move in in fulfilling that promise. Genesis 12, God says this to Abraham. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chose Abraham. He was this this first big move toward fulfilling that promise. And he said, "Um, my hope is going to come through you. It's, It's building. And this is the beginning of the nation of Israel. God's chosen people through whom his rescuer would come. And and God made these two promises to Abraham. Uh, First, that that he would make of him a great nation, a mighty people. Um, And he would later take Abraham out under the night sky and say, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. So there's this promise of this great nation. And then a second promise, the end of verse 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through that great nation coming through Abraham, God's blessing, God's rescue would come to the world. Every other nation would be blessed through them. It's this promise of hope, of restoration to the world. It's it's that God would make everything okay. And you follow the story through Genesis and into Exodus and God miraculously gave Abraham a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who become the the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel and this great nation begins to take shape. God rescued them out of the land of Egypt with mighty miracles and bringing them across the the Red Sea. Uh, In Exodus 6-7, God says this to the nation of Israel, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He would be Israel's God. They would be his people uh, and they would know him. This is like marriage-type language here. God is saying, I, God, take you, Israel. 
and he's making them his bride. And he sees he calls himself their husband, and he makes Israel his prized possession among all the nations of the earth, and he, he pours out his blessing on them. He, he gives them his personal covenant name, Yahweh. He gives them his law, which is this expression of who he is, his, his character. And he showed them how to be right with him. He lays out the, the tabernacle and the, the sacrificial system, and it was all about them being reconciled to God, having right relationship with him again. But it was all about Israel. It was all about that nation. Romans 9, um, chapter, or verse 4, um, Paul says this about Israel. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It was about them. They had the promises. They had the covenants. They had the glory. They were God's chosen people and, and had God's blessing. And so that second promise, the promise of this blessing breaking out to the whole world, it lingered. It waited. So the next thing I want to look at is the, the promise waiting. That's point two, the promise waiting. God did not fulfill his promise right away. God's timing is not our timing. He is working out his plan from his eternal perspective. And as he so often does, he saw fit to, to work out this plan and, and insert a, a period of waiting. God is fulfilling these promises, but, but specifically to Israel. And, and later in, in Ephesians 2, Paul says this uh, about those who are outside of Israel. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. God had promised through Abraham all nations would be blessed. That he would come for all, but where was it? Because so far it's just confined to the nation of Israel. And the world is left waiting without God and without hope. Now, there are glimpses of it. There are these, these little shimmers of light that break through. And, 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 and some of them we see in this very genealogy in the book of Matthew. There are some strange things about this genealogy, and if there were any good Jews here this morning, they would have spotted these immediately. Um, that's out of place. You're reading along, and there's this familiar pattern, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and it, and it follows down the line of the fathers. That's what a genealogy did. That's how you traced a family tree. And on top of that, these are great men. Noteworthy men. These are the honored founding fathers of the nation of Israel. And then out of the blue shows up Tamar. She's a woman. Why is she here? This doesn't make sense. This is out of the ordinary. And, and not just that she's a woman, but why that woman? If you remember, Tamar's story is not pretty. It's messy. Tamar uh, was the husband of Judah's son, Ur. You say, well, why isn't Ur in there? Well, the Bible says that he was wicked and God put him to death. 
And so she's left widowed, and as was the custom of the day, she was then married to Ur's brother, her brother-in-law, and he was to provide her with a a family and children. Uh, And Ur's brother Onan uh, wickedly deprived her of children, and so God struck him down. Tamar grew frustrated, and rather than waiting on the Lord, she disguised herself as a prostitute, and she fooled her father-in-law. And so her children, Perez and Zerah, are conceived through incest. It's not pretty. It's messy. And yet, there's Tamar included in this genealogy, included in this family line. Off it goes from there, as expected, back to the regular pattern, the father of, the father of, the father of. And then um, we come to verse 5, and we see Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. There it is again. Another woman shows up in the list here. Um, And again, we ask, not just a woman, but why this woman? Incidentally, we talked about Rahab last week from the book of James. Um, She was not a great example of a, a stalwart pure, holy woman. She was not even an Israelite. She's not part of this chosen nation. She's an outsider. She's a Canaanite, one of the people that were so wicked that God uh, commanded Israel to wipe them off the face of the earth completely. And not only was she a Canaanite, but she was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. She was an outsider. She was far, far from God. Uh, She was far from anything like obedience to him. She had no place among the people of God. She was alienated from the covenant promises. She was a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel. She was sinful, detestable person, the kind of woman that that any self-respecting Jew would not have wanted to be found in the same building as her. She is definitely marked by, by guilt and shame. Her name shows up here. It's shocking. Absolutely out of place. And then right after, there's one more. Rahab's son, Boaz, is the father of Obed by Ruth. Another woman. Uh, What else do we know about Ruth? Well, she's a Moabite. And and those scriptures speak well of Ruth, and and it's a a heartwarming story. Um, The Moabites were a wicked, wicked people. They were notorious for their sexual immorality. Um, They would offer their children to their god, Chemosh, by burning them in the fire. Um, They were a wicked people. That's that's where Ruth came from. That's her culture. That's her background before she met Naomi. What is God doing? What is he saying through this genealogy and these, these strange additions along the way here? He's giving these glimpses forward. These are women defined by guilt and shame. They are women who were previously hopeless, who had broken relationships with one another and broken relationship with the Lord. They were nobodies, and God brought them in, made them literally part of his family, and he he gave them a hope and a future. He made them part of this blessed nation, totally out of the ordinary, unexpected. Their inclusion in this list is a a glimmer of light just peeking through the crack in the door that Christmas is about to blow open. 
God is saying, I have chosen Israel. They are my precious people. They are the the people that I will pour out my blessing on them. I will draw them to myself. Uh, But my heart is for all people. In fact, particularly for the outsiders, for the weak, for the downtrodden, the insignificant, those who are hopelessly buried under the heap of guilt and shame. My promise was for all nations and it's coming. It's coming, and he just gives these little tastes along the way. And yet it waits. After Abraham, um, that promise lingered. These, these glimpses come and go, but the promise remains largely unfilled for another 2,000 years until that first Christmas. And there we see the promise fulfilled. Point three, the promise fulfilled. Matthew is carefully pointing out here Um, Jesus is not just a son of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham. This is it. He's the one. He is the rescuer that Genesis 3.15 was pointing forward to. He's fulfilling all of it. This is the one who would bring the, the promises that God made to Abraham through to completion. We celebrate Christmas as a time of hope. Think about the, the nostalgia, the traditions that surround Christmas. Um, think about the family togetherness, and, 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 and it's all about forgiveness and reconciliation. And, and we see these messages all around us, even right down to the commercials that are shown. Um, it's about people coming together, about restoration. Remember the closing scene to the movie Home Alone? Anyone familiar with Home Alone? Um, I finally got it into our Christmas movie lineup last year, and uh, nobody died by paint cans to the head this year from our kids, so I call it a win. Um, Kevin McAllister, he's left alone, right? He's the outsider. He's the kid at home that nobody likes. He's, he's pushed aside. He's grounded, sent up to the upper room, and his family leaves without him. They don't even remember to bring him along on their Christmas vacation. Nobody is kind to him. Nobody likes him. And then the end of the movie, Christmas morning, he wakes up to the sound of his mother's voice. Kevin! And he comes running downstairs, and moments later, the rest of the family comes bustling through the door, and it's happy and rejoicing. He even gets a high five from his brother Buzz, and and there's all this great restoration and reconciliation. And then he, he looks out the window, and through the gently falling snow, he sees the old man from the church apologizing to his daughter and meeting his granddaughter for the first time. And it's beautiful. And we love all the, the feel-goods that come with it. We thrive on these things, even if we're, we're totally, we know it's make-believe. And we're about to turn off the TV and go back to a, a broken world, a broken life. And yet we long for that kind of hope, that kind of restoration. And our culture doesn't recognize it, but at the root of that, the very core of that, is a need to be reconciled and restored, not just to one another, but to God, our creator. That's the ultimate place of of meaningful belonging and acceptance and peace. And, And that's what we truly need. Jesus came at Christmas with the expressed purpose and plan to die on the cross, bringing on himself, our guilt and our shame, the the shame that separates us from one another, the guilt that separates us from God, he took it so that the promises of God that came through Abraham 
first in, in these faith glimpses through the nation of Israel, might overflow in fullness, as promised, to, to all the nations. To all of them. That, that we who were outsiders, who were far from God, who were sinners and rebels against him, buried in guilt and shame, who, who were absolutely without hope and without God in this world, might be welcomed completely into his family, made, made part of this family tree, given a new family, a new belonging, not only reconciled to one another, but, but more importantly, reconciled to God. John 12, 32, Jesus speaks of his death this way, and I, when I'm lifted up, he's speaking of his crucifixion, being raised up from the ground, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's significant. I will break open these promises beyond just the nation of Israel. It will go to all people. God had promised Abraham that God would bless all nations of the world through him. And, and Jesus in his crucifixion is saying it'll happen. Here it goes. Remember Ephesians 2.12 that we read earlier. Speaking of those outside of Israel. Remember it that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in this world. Uh, he goes on to say in Ephesians 2, but now, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made us both one, both being the, the Jews, God's chosen people, and every other nation, the Gentiles, made us one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He united us together in Christ. And then verses 17 to 19, he came, Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off, that's us, and peace to those who are near, that's the Jews. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's united. He's, he's brought reconciliation among us with one another and reconciliation to God. In Christ, we're joined into this new people no longer the, the nation of Israel versus the Gentiles, but a new nation, a new family adopted by God. A new humanity. No, no longer descendants of Adam in the, in the lineage of guilt and shame and inheriting his separation from God and his broken genealogy, but adopted as children of Jesus Christ. This new humanity marked not by guilt and shame, but by his righteousness on us. And we inherit his perfect relationship with the Father. God even used the wicked high priest Caiaphas uh, to speak this very truth. John eleven forty nine. 49. Um, one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand it is better for you that one man should die for the nation and not the whole nation perish. He's speaking politically. Caiaphas, is, he, he's, he's scared about the Romans putting them down because of this uprising, this, this riot following Jesus. And he says, it's better that we just kill Jesus and get on with our life um, than have the whole nation perish. And yet, listen to this. 
He didn't say this of his own accord. God, God is speaking through him, and he doesn't even know it. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What a beautiful picture. What a great hope that Jesus in his death is gathering into one, uniting together a new people, his children who are scattered around the world. He's bringing them together. And in Jesus, the blessing of God goes out to gather this new nation, this children of God. God has this, this global purpose for people from, from every nation. And it's not just people who have it all together. It's not about those who, um, who are doing the right things, but people like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, those who have pasts of guilt and shame and surrounded by brokenness, they're welcomed into this new family, given this new life in Christ with our guilt and our shame wiped away, taken care of. And the fear, that hopelessness that we once had, that, that uncertainty about the future, wondering what lies in store is, is replaced by a confident hope. Not a worldly hope, not, not this light, fluffy, cotton candy, wishful thinking, everything will be okay, just look inside yourself kind of hope. No, no, a solid hope built on the truth, built on the faithfulness of God. And right now, once again, we live in that in-between time, a time of waiting, in a sense. Jesus has come. The promise has been partially fulfilled. He's purchased our salvation and he's patiently waiting until the full number of hopeless sinners are, are brought into him, are drawn from afar. It's interesting. It'd be easy to make too much of this. This is no prediction. But from Genesis 3.15 to Abraham, the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise was 2,000 years. And from Abraham through to Jesus was 2,000 years. How long has it been since Jesus came? About 2,000 years. Maybe. Maybe, church. Um, we keep looking, and we ought to be eagerly awaiting that day, looking forward to his return when those promises will be brought to full completion. Our, our unity with one another and with him will be brought into the full light when he comes again. But he has said that he will not come again until the gospel has gone out to every nation, has reached the furthest corners of this earth until every last one of his wandering sheep have been brought into the fold. And so we wait, eagerly and expectantly we wait, um, and we wait actively, we wait taking out this gospel, declaring to the world, hey, he's come. What a great opportunity we have at Christmas. So you, you know that peace and, and that joy and that hope that you guys keep singing about that you think is make-believe? It's real. Let me introduce you to this Jesus. Let me show you what that means. And as we wait, we look forward. The book of Revelation gives us a picture of what that day will look like when Jesus returns and, and 
and comes back for us. He will come this time um, not as the humble sheep to be slaughtered for the sake of our sin, but rather as the mighty warrior victorious over sin. Um, And he will ultimately destroy all those who stand against him. There will be great resurrection from the dead. The the wicked will be judged and cast into hell. And and Satan himself will be thrown into the fiery pit. And God will recreate this world. Make it new. Bring it back to that Garden of Eden-like state of perfection. In fact, even better. Made pure and clean without the corruption of sin. Without the, the poison and decay of death. And then Revelation 5 gives us uh, this picture of who to expect to be there. What will it look like? Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song. They're singing to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Listen to this. From every tribe and language and people and nation." And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on this earth. That's our hope. By his blood, he ransomed, he purchased for himself a new nation and and people from, from every tribe and every language and every nation. And we get to be part of this incredibly diverse and yet completely unified family. And there will be in perfect peace. Rest, harmony, satisfaction, joy in the presence of God Almighty forever. It's so much better than than what feels too good to be true today. That's the true hope of Christmas. So let me invite you, church, reclaim that this Christmas. Christmas is not about empty, futile promises of world peace. It's not about believing in miracles in some kind of juvenile way. It's not about the the goodness in you. It's not about good feelings that come for a season and then vanish when New Year's comes and we go back to work again. Um, It's about an actual confident hope, a rock-solid hope in the the reality that, that God welcomes helpless, hopeless sinners and outsiders, you and me by the blood of Christ into his perfect eternal home. Let's pray. 